0: <laughs> test, 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 test. There we go. All right, thank you. Thank you, Tyler. <laughs> all right, well, uh, just before we before we jump into the message, uh, there are a lot of it's so great to have so many different people here from all over the place and from Gunnison to I don't know where Egypt did I hear that? Yeah. You know, I mean, everything, uh, and all kinds of personalities here in all kinds of athletic abilities here. And we have one person with us who just has won something really incredible. And I got to point her out to you. That's Yari. I'm sorry to embarrass you, Yari. Just, you can just wave. You don't have to stand up. Just stick your hand. Okay. National, (laughs) national ski mountaineering champion, team champion from last week. So. That's, crazy ability. it was just fun to hear your stories Yari I just love kind of vicariously I know sorry I didn't I didn't ask her if I could uh, do that but it's so cool God's gifted you and uh, it's exciting that you use it like that so we all like to be encouraged everyone likes to have something nice said about them a compliment or I mean it can be minor it can be huge it can be something you really don't deserve any credit for <laughs> I've learned something, though, in marriage, that you have to be careful with your compliments. For instance, I could say to Claire something like, Wow, your hair looks great. Now, I'm hoping she's going to say, Oh, thanks. But there's about a 50% chance that she's going to say, So you didn't like it yesterday. I don't know why that is, but that's how it goes. You have to be careful what you compliment and how you do it. Uh, and what made me think of that was this week, uh, Jim came into my office, my predecessor here. He came in, and he had had coffee with Claire just to visit and catch up and see how things were going. And so he came in, and he said, he sat down, and he sat there for a minute, and he goes, How did you get her to marry you? <laughs> Now, I took that as a compliment because <laughs> I knew it was a big deal, and I don't know the answer, <laughs> but I'm not sure what it says about Claire. Her judgment is questionable, according to Jim, <laughs> but we'll take it all positively, right? So we're, we're in this just 1 Peter 1, just one chapter for about nine weeks, and we're just about a little bit over halfway through that. And it's a, book of, it's, a, it's a chapter of encouragement. That's, that's what this is about. And Peter has... He's speaking to this group of people who have been going through immense trials. They've been forced out of their homes. They've had to move hundreds of miles away, as I've told you, over the past few weeks. And their lives have been turned upside down. But the reason for that is that they told people... And they lived before people, their faith. People knew that they were followers of Jesus in that community. And because of that, they were ostracized so much so, much so that they had to leave. It was so painful and so, so, it was so difficult that they had to leave. And what's happened now is that they've moved so far away and still things aren't better. And so Peter's writing and saying, hey, I want to encourage you. And he's gone through this process of, In these first few verses that I want to quickly run you through so that you can hear exactly what his argument is to say you can be encouraged. And the first thing he does, first verses 1 and 2, is he says that regardless of your trials, you can have complete peace. Uh, The peace of Jesus Christ can be with you regardless of the trials that you're facing. That's the first thing that he says to them. And the second thing in, in verse 3 and 4 and 5, he says, you can have security in any situation that you are facing. Whatever and however hard it gets, you can have security. And he says, the reason, one of the reasons for that is that you have been spiritually reborn into God's family. You've been born again into his family, and brought into that place with him. He is the only good father, and he is now your father if you are following Jesus. And then in verse 6 and 7, which Al spoke to us about wonderfully last week, he says, you're going through these trials, but they're for a good reason. They're for your betterment, they're for you, and they're also to bring glory to God. Whatever you're going through, this struggle that you're going through is to bring glory to God and for you to to be um, refined, as he says, refined like gold is refined in a fire. So he's building this argument for them. And then we get to verses 8 and 9 today. And it's almost as if Peter turns a corner and he is observing them. He's been telling them who they are and why. But he looks at them and he says, the reason that you've been successful so far is because of this. And that's what we're going to talk about. It's really in verse 8. Let's read that together. Verse 8. Though you've been through all these trials, all these things are happening to you that are very difficult... And though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And Chris, earlier in the week, I told Chris that I was going to do verses 8 and 9. And the more I worked on it this week, I just had to shrink it up to verse 8. So we're just going to stop there. Verse 8, though you have not seen him. This is what Peter's seeing This is how you have been successful. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So this is what I think Peter is saying. And this is what the point I want to make to you today. When he looked at them, he was saying, you are making it through your trials, these trials, because of your faith in Jesus. You are making it through these things because of your faith in Jesus. And he describes that faith, three, mainly three things, and we're going to look at these today. He's, he says, you've kept your eyes on Jesus. One part, aspect of this faith is that you've kept your eyes on Jesus. And by faith, you love Jesus. You've kept your eyes on him by faith. By faith, you love him. And third, by faith you rejoice. So we're going to unpack that in the next few minutes. But before we do that, what I want to do is is say that uh, trials were certainly not something uh, limited to people in the first century. Now These people were facing persecution because they had said, hey, I'm a Christian. And because of that, in their religious context, they were ostracized. I don't want to dredge stuff up for us in here right now, but instead of I want I to do it like this with you. Um, I want to ask you just for a minute to be thinking about the things that are trials in your life. Because what Peter does is he doesn't in his argument, he doesn't say, "Hey, things are going to get better. It's all fine. Don't worry about it." He acknowledges the reality of the trial. And he sets on the other side of that, Jesus. And so in some sense, this these trials that we're facing that sometimes consume us are um, things that we need to not minimize, and I don't think Peter's doing that, but embrace them and immerse ourselves in them as hard as they might be. Because those things are balanced against something that's really immeasurable and someone who is really immeasurable, and that is Jesus. And see, the reason that they're successful is that their eyes are on Jesus. Their faith is in Jesus. So I want to incur- I'm going to bring up a couple of topics here for you, but I want you to think in these areas. Am I looking at those things or am I looking at Jesus. For instance, I, for one, did not like middle school. Maybe I'm the only one, but I thought it was horrible. Every day was this challenge that I went through of just, who am I? What do people think? Am I going to get persecuted today just for, you know, because I have one hair out of place? You know, middle school is hard, and I admire you guys just for making it through especially though if you're wrestling with your faith, with following Jesus. If you make decisions that reflect your faith, that's automatically setting yourself outside of everybody else. And anytime you do that in junior high, when you set yourself apart, you're gonna get it. And that's why I think this is an important message. Relationships that we're in that are trials for us could be boyfriend, girlfriend, marriage, parent, child, child parent. Our valley is full of extreme people who live on the edge, so we are more likely to face addictions and things that make decisions that push us to succeed or to um, do things that uh, are a, a greater, make a greater experience, and they, and they sometimes become a, um, an incredible trial for us. Things like health or work, what my job is going to do, what's going to happen to me, finances, so many different things. And I know that what I would like to do, like I said, is just bring those up in our minds and ask you as as we walk through this passage to um, have those and embrace those, but look to Jesus. So I'm not coming to you saying, hey, If you just look to Jesus, everything's going to be great. That's not what I'm saying. Peter doesn't say that either. Jesus isn't a Santa Claus or snake oil that you just get this thing and everything gets better. That's the reason for the message that Peter's writing. Things aren't necessarily going to be better. But he is saying... That when we look to Jesus, there is something possible that is not um, a reality, and not possible in any other way in dealing with our trials. And I hope I can unfold that a little bit to you. If you're not a believer and you're thinking, okay, look to Jesus, what does that mean? I don't know what you're talking about. That's okay. Just listen and, and follow along with how these people in the first century were dealing with these troubles. Just think about it. Okay, so the main point, they're making, this, they're making it through these trials, Peter says to them, because of their faith. And three things about it. You kept your eyes on Jesus through faith. Through faith, you loved Jesus. And through faith, you rejoice in him. So let's talk about keeping the, what it was to keep their eyes on Jesus and what it would be for us. In verse 8, it says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. He starts, the, he starts that passage with the word though. He's acknowledging that there's some kind of contrast, some kind of paradox here. Things are really hard for you. And though that is happening, you still, keep, you still see Jesus. You have not seen him physically, but your eyes are on him. The eyes of your heart are on Christ. Now we take comfort in things that we can see. We like the things that we can see. We find solutions knowing that this relationship is here or this resource is here, this material resource or this hope or this some kind of future that I know is going to pan out. We put our, our focus on those things. But Peter Unfolds this a little bit more for us. And he says, all right, you didn't see him. You didn't know him personally. And you don't see him now. And he, what he's doing is he's saying that there is this hope unfolding for the future. It's, he leaves off the third one. You will see him. There's a little progression at the beginning of verse eight. Though things are really hard for him and though you haven't seen him, And though you don't see him now, you will see him. And so he's laying this hope out. He just doesn't say it. He's getting them to look forward to that because faith looks forward. So he shows this temporal progression that these people are going through. And there's something that I've noticed, especially in sports or maybe even, I guess, mountain biking in particular. When you focus on something, especially when you're moving quickly, you go towards that thing, right? So if you're ever being trained, people say, don't look at the thing you want to not hit. Don't look at the tree or the big boulder in the trail, but look up ahead where you want to go. See, we go towards the thing that we're looking at. And he's saying, people, you are successful. Though you haven't seen him, the eyes of your heart are on Jesus. They're looking at him, and the obstacles are coming, but their eyes are on Jesus. And this helps them to be successful. Uh, Mark Driscoll, he's a pretty famous preacher. He says that people, we have these functional saviors. These are things that we look at that help us, or we think are going to help us get over the next problem. Like I said before, relationships, success, our skill, the next thing that's coming for us. But what Peter says is, let's take our eyes off the trial. Let's take our eyes off the things. You have taken your eyes off the trial. You've taken your eyes off the things of this earth. And you're looking with the eyes of your heart at Jesus. And because of that, you're successfully moving through the hardest times in your life. Whenever the deepest part of us is looking at the trial, or looking at the things that we think are important in this world then we're missing the blessing that these people were experiencing even in the midst of the greatest trials that they could go through. The eyes of their hearts were on Jesus. So I, I have to ask myself and you the question, where are your eyes? Are they on those trials that we're talking about? Are they on the things that you think are going to help you get over them that are just earthly things? Or are they on Jesus? Okay, second thing. He says, you were successful, and you are successful because you loved Jesus. Though you have not seen him, remember it says that, it, you love him. That's kind of a, a stretch. You know? how, how do you love someone that you've never seen? And it, Instead of tell you and, and try to explain how we do that, I want to look at the why, because I think that's what Peter does in the first eight verses of this, of this chapter. One reason, and this is going to sound a little bit odd when I say it, it's from verse 2. One reason that they love Jesus, and Peter calls it out, and one reason that we love Jesus is because we're sprinkled with his blood. That's in verse 2. Now that sounds strange. What does it mean to be sprinkled with his blood? The reason Peter says that is not because blood is being sprinkled on people. It's a metaphor. But a lot of these people that were going through these trials were Jewish people. And so they're immediately identifying with the story from Exodus when the the Israelites are in the desert and God tells Moses to sacrifice this unblemished animal. And part of what I want you to do this one time is sprinkle the blood of this animal on the people to ensure the covenant between me and, and them, for myself and with them. So the idea that we're sprinkled with blood, when you read that, if you're just reading through it for the first time, you're like, what does that mean? But to them, it meant a whole lot. And to us, the reason that it's important is because we have been covered by the sacrifice of Christ. That this, this was an unblemished sacrifice, and Jesus did all the work so that we could be in a relationship with God. He sprinkled us with his blood, in other words. So they loved because he had redeemed them through his sacrifice. That's one reason they loved him. Another one is because of his great mercy. And at the beginning of the passage also, uh, in in chapter 1, in verse 3, Peter says it's because of the great mercy of God that you even have the opportunity to have your eyes fixed on Jesus, to know Jesus. It's because of his great mercy. When we get to the point when we're with God, when everything is worked out, when we are before him, We will understand the magnitude of the mercy that we received. But until then, we will not understand that mercy. And it's because of that mercy, the the fact that we have been, um, again, like the Jewish people in the wilderness, because we wander and wander and are ungrateful and do not give mercy when we realize the mercy we've been given that Christ would actually sacrifice himself for us, it's going to blow us away. And because of that, they loved him and we love him. And so Peter is laying out these reasons that they loved him. Because he redeemed them by his blood, because of his great mercy. And here's this, I just love this. uh, and, And this is another reason that we love him, because he identifies with our suffering. He identifies with our personal suffering. I got this from a Tim Keller message. I can't tell you that I uh, found it on my own. It's part of a poem by a guy named Edward Shalito, who wrote around the beginning of the last century. And he's writing about the incredible uniqueness of Jesus in making reconciliation with God possible. And I want to read it to you. And, and just let it sink in because it, it shows us the way and the uniqueness of the way that Jesus has redeemed us. It says, these are the last four lines of the poem. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou just didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. The sacrifice, the mercy, and the suffering of Jesus All of these things revealed to us in the scripture and revealed to us in the first eight verses of 1 Peter, carefully crafted for us, cause us and cause them to love him, though they cannot see him, though we cannot see him. And the third thing about this faith in Jesus, one last thing. And this is perhaps the most unusual thing. It says that they rejoiced. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now rejoicing isn't a word that I use very often. Anybody ever say the word rejoice? Hey guys, let's rejoice. It sounds pretty archaic, right? A lot of times in the scripture and when you hear people talk about rejoicing or joy in, in the scripture, what they'll say is that, well, this rejoicing that they're talking about is a sense of contentment in hard times. You've probably heard that before. Joy is not, it doesn't mean you're going to be happy. It means that you're going to, to experience contentment through whatever these difficulties are that you're facing. However, when you read this passage and you look at what the word rejoicing is, It does mean more than contentment. It actually indicates something much greater. It includes contentment, but it also is celebration and even happiness. And you know, to me, that's a paradox. And this paradox has been going on from the very beginning of this chapter. You're going through trials, but you can have peace. You're going through trials, but it's okay, you're secure in God. You're going through trials, you can rejoice. I was, when I was first studying the passage, I was envisioning this like a big seesaw, like a really big one with a huge plank on it, really heavy plank. And I was envisioning, you know, suffering on this side and rejoicing on this side. And somehow Peter was saying, you got to walk out on this plank until you get to that, that fulcrum and you've got to stand there and balance this thing between suffering and rejoicing. You know, and it's a real heavy. I don't know if you've ever been on something really big like that, but it it starts to go one way and you've got to really overcompensate and you're just going back and forth. But the more I spend time in it, he, he doesn't say, oh, you know, minimize both of these things. Just kind of be content and don't, don't worry about the trial. You know, it's going to pass. Well, I think what he's saying is that is it's not about a, a seesaw. It's about being immersed completely in both of these places. Acknowledge, go all in to the struggle that you're facing. Don't minimize it. Be there. Accept it. It is refining you, and it is going to bring glory to God. At the same time, you can rejoice. Now, that's, that's the strange thing. A, a person who doesn't know Christ could say, you know, I went through this trial, and I'm happy because it, ref, it made me better. That's a common idea. It's just like working out. i I suffered really hard, but now I'm in better shape. Right? Everybody gets that. So there's a sense of even elation or joy in going through a hard time for people who don't know Christ. But here's where Peter turns the corner, and you probably noticed when I read it. He says, You rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. Now, in other words, this joy is so great because you know in a, your, because of your faith in Jesus that you can't even find words for it. Outside of faith in Christ, that really doesn't make sense. Inexpressible joy in very difficult times. But then Peter says one more thing at the end of this. He says that that inexpressible joy this thing that is this joy that you can't have, it is a actual feeling, it is a reality, is filled with glory. And it's not our glory that he's talking about. It's not what we're going to get or somehow that we're going to be glorified. What he's saying is that there is the glory of Jesus. The whole focus of this thing the whole balance, the whole, the whole idea is that we're looking to Jesus and it is his glory. It is that relationship with the God of the universe, realizing how incredible he is, what mercy he has on you and I, the fact that he sacrificed himself, even though he was God for us. All of those things fill that rejoicing that we have or can have. Now, I'm, I need to be honest with you. I'm My faith doesn't reflect these people that Peter was writing to. I can mentally acknowledge that I will benefit from suffering, but to find joy in it is a whole other thing. And that only comes because of our faith in Jesus. It's not rejoicing in the trial trials are temporary. They're necessary, but they're temporary. Jesus is permanent. Jesus is everything. So Peter says to these people, you're successful in moving through this because your eyes are on Jesus, because you love Jesus through faith, and because you rejoice. That helps you to be successful. And I want to I leave you with just two Two thoughts. One is I want to reread the words of Edward Shalito and then I want to read from Hebrews 12.2 and then I'm going to pray and we're going to go to communion. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. We'll be successful in moving through trials when our eyes and our faith are in Jesus. In Hebrews 12, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look to Jesus. Have faith in Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross for us, despised the shame for us, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God in glory. God, I want to come to you with my friends here today. And Lord, I I think this is an extremely difficult um, 30 words that Peter wrote to us. God, we do not know how to deal with our trials in a way that is like this. But God, I just, I know and all I see in that verse is that Peter is telling us that if we put our eyes on Jesus, if we have faith in him and who he is, that he will bring us through. And even in a state of rejoicing, God, in a state of celebration, I, I don't understand that, but it is of you. God, I pray for every person in here, each person's heart who is suffering. God, you have brought this, this line of text to them today. Because they need it, and I need it. And God, in any of those areas that we suffer and we are in trial, God, I pray that we would not be afraid to immerse ourselves in that trial, to accept it and sink into it and see it as your refining, as bringing glory to you in the end. But at the same time, God, may we absolutely be looking to Jesus with faith and experience the joy that is possible even in the midst of the suffering. So we lift that up to you, Father, in his name. Amen.
1: It's a great message. Great message this morning. Thank you, Scott. We're going to go to communion now. Um, Scott talked about the rituals in the Old Testament and the sprinkling of the blood. Blood represents life. And these rituals of atonement involving the blood of animals was to give us life. Okay, And part of the job of the priests were to sprinkle the blood on the altar to cover our sins. One of the offices that Jesus took up was as priest. And He was the priest because He went to the cross. And He became the sacrifice and poured out His blood for our sins. He is the perfect Lamb. And through faith in that, we acknowledge His saving grace. We also acknowledge Him doing what He did on behalf of our sins. We're instructing the Bible to take communion... And so in observance of that, in obedience to Jesus, we're going to go ahead and do that now. And he also tells us that we should examine ourselves prior to taking communion. So we're going to take a moment of silence in observance of that. And I've got some scripture. I'm sorry? Have you asked him to do it? And then the people that are going to come and take care of the elements for me are going to come and join me. But let's take a moment of silence I'm in observance of this time.